You're listening to East Bay Yesterday. This show is about history, but it's not stuck in the past. Let's begin. Let's begin. Hi, everybody. This is East Bay Yesterday, and I'm your host, Liam O'Donohue. We have a big episode today, so I'll make this intro brief. On January 21st, 2023, I interviewed Ali Winston and Darwin Bond-Graham about their brand new book. It's called The Riders Come Out at Night, Brutality, Corruption, and Cover-Up in Oakland. In this conversation, we discuss the history of the Oakland Police Department, the current scandal that has resulted in Chief Armstrong being put on administrative leave, and uh, much, much more. We recorded this event in front of a live audience at Cleo's, a new bookstore and cafe that's uh, so new it hasn't even opened yet. Uh, this venue, Cleo's, is over by Lake Merritt, and unfortunately, the building was smashed into by a fire truck last year. So that's delayed things by a few months, but uh, look for Cleo's books to be opening soon. And uh, as long as there aren't any more unforeseen disasters, I hope to be doing more events there in the near future. Uh, big thanks to the team at Cleo's for letting us use the space, even though it's still a work in progress. And uh, if you wanna know more about my upcoming events, you can sign up for my free newsletter at eastbayyesterday.com. Okay, let's get to the interview. Here's my conversation with Ali Winston and Darwin Bond Graham. A few years ago, I was having a few drinks with these guys just on the other side of the lake in the beer garden behind Hart and Dagger Saloon. And the occasion was Ali Winston's going away party. Uh, he was moving back to his hometown, New York City. And uh, I was kind of bummed, not only because I was losing proximity to a, to a good friend, but also because the Bay Area was losing one of its best journalists. So it makes me so happy to see Ali here back in Oakland tonight to talk about what he does best. And uh, of course, in his absence, Darwin, has not only been continuing this vital journalism, but has helped build a whole new platform for, uh, for it, a new site that was sorely needed. Can I hear it for the Oakland side? All right, so while we are here tonight to celebrate their new book, uh, this is gonna be a difficult and uh, sometimes even tragic conversation. Uh, and before we start talking about the Oakland Police Department, I, I want to set the scene. Uh, as I mentioned, we're recording this for the, uh, the radio audience on KPFA and my podcast audience, East Bay Yesterday. And, and there's a lot of listeners outside of the Bay Area. So I just want to explain, uh, tell a couple of stories about what it's like to live in Oakland these days. Um, about a week ago, I got an email from someone in my neighborhood. It said, quote, on Sunday night, my friend right down the street had an attempted home invasion and her dog was shot and killed. It took police almost two hours to get there. Several friends, including myself, were on the scene before the police. Uh, about two weeks ago, on New Year's Eve, I got a call from my neighbor. Someone was trying to steal his car from directly in front of his house. And uh, last year, one of my good friends was robbed at gunpoint in broad daylight, right around the corner from where we live. 
And the crazy thing about this is I don't even feel like I live on a particularly dangerous block. And the point of these stories is uh, that I'm trying to make is that, you know, a lot of the time people who are critical of the police are treated like we don't care about crime, that we are excusing the violence that happens in Oakland. And of course, that's ridiculous. People on all parts of the political spectrum want public safety. The question is, how do we achieve that goal? So tonight, you might hear me use words like dysfunctional to describe the OPD. Is that unfair? Is it an exaggeration? Just a few quick facts that uh, I learned from Ali and Darwin's book, and uh, you can judge for yourself. In 2013, the crime lab was so backed up that a grand jury found untested evidence from 330 murders. One more statistic. Between 2002 and 2011, Oakland paid more than $46 million to settle police misconduct claims, quote, far outstripping similar costs in larger cities like San Jose and San Francisco. So I could go on and on, but the point isn't to highlight these bad examples, it's to understand how we got here. This police department, the OPD, has been under court oversight since 2003, which, by the way, is the longest consent degree of this nature in American history. And uh, as we're recording this conversation right now in January 2023, the current chief of police, Chief Armstrong, is on administrative leave pending an investigation into a, uh, a new scandal that's still unfolding, a topic that I'm sure uh, will be coming up later this evening. But in order to put all this into context, you know, get into the big picture here, this book goes back more than a century to show a long continuum of police misconduct, to put it mildly, from officers regularly extorting money from Chinatown residents in the 1800s uh, to the 1920s when a card-carrying member of the, the KKK was the police chief. Uh, the book continues up through the Cold War when the OPD was working hand-in-glove with downtown business elites to crush labor movements and striking workers. Uh, talks about how in the Vietnam era, the OPD was utilizing Hell's Angels, a criminal gang, as uh, enforcers and informants to crack down on anti-war activists. And of course, the book also goes into great detail uh, on the OPD's bloody offensive against the Black Panther Party, uh, and in some ways, uh, the bloody offensive against Oakland's African-American community writ large. It's all part of a deadly legacy that is still very much connected to what we see on the streets in Oakland today. One more thing I need to mention before we get to the conversation here. If you know your history and read the headlines, I know a lot of people in this room do, maybe what's gonna be most shocking when you read this book isn't what the Oakland Police Department has done, but what they've gotten away with. Just to give one example, most people in this room are probably familiar with uh, the so-called Celeste Guap scandal, which involved numerous officers sexually, sexually exploiting a teenager. Not a single officer from Oakland's police department spent even a single day in jail for those acts that were committed. And yet, as this book points out, there has been progress in terms of far less police killings, far less complaints of brutality, and less racial profiling uh, since 
the events of the Ryder scandal 20 years ago. Obviously, there's still a long way to go, um, but I should acknowledge that some of these reforms that have happened, some of, the, some of the positive change, some of the progress that's happened is the result of people here tonight, activists, lawyers, researchers, other journalists. I don't think this change would have happened without you. Thank you for refusing to accept the status quo. So let's start this conversation, but before we do, can I get a round of applause for Ali Winston and Darwin Bongrand? All right, before we get into everything that you have investigated and what you've written about in this book, one thing I'm curious about is uh, like your jobs. It can't be an easy job to investigate law enforcement. So uh, investigate law enforcement. So I'm wondering what drew you to this beat and uh, how did you get started covering the Oakland Police Department together? So for me, law enforcement coverage is it kind of goes back to when I was first starting out as a journalist. Um, so my first job was at a small newspaper in Hudson County in Jersey City. Um, if any of you have seen the movie Clockers or read the book by Richard Price, it's actually based on Richard Price's ride-alongs in Hudson County with EMTs and cops and people on the street and just being in that community for like two or three years. Um, it's a pretty gritty place. And I was a GA reporter, general assignment. Kind of everything that happened was kind of thrown at me, and I figured out um, after, for, after a few weeks or months on the job that I was good at covering law enforcement. I was good at covering what happened in the criminal justice system, and I was drawn to it. Um, I won't say that, you know, the fact that The Wire was kind of in full swing and David Simon's, like, no, his cultural influence was really high. Um, but I also grew up in New York City during Giuliani time when the NYPD was in the middle of its, you know, Monodoro phase or the one of the most egregious phases of its repressive, uh, repressive tendencies. And I saw a lot. Um, I learned a lot about the side of the criminal justice system that doesn't look so good, um, not just from experiences with my friends. I mean, I'm white presenting, I'm white, I'm half Turkish, but like my dad's family is Anglo. Um, and you learn a lot growing up in those environments. And like, I won't say that the killings of, you know, Amadou Diallo, you know, all these other folks who were shot by the NYPD during that period of time, the abuse of Abner Luima in a precinct, that really made a very, very deep mark on me. So, um, it is a matter of being drawn to the subject, realizing that like through the lens of the criminal justice system, you actually can explain and explore a lot about American society, um, which is part of the problem, really. <laughs> so, yeah, I never, <clears throat> I never set out to be a journalist. I was actually in a graduate school in the mid late two thousands, trying to get a degree in sociology from UC Santa Barbara, and. Um, I was studying social movements and housing inequality and racial inequality, and I had some really fantastic professors. And um, the Great Recession happened in 2010, and I, I graduated with my degree, and I was, you know, looking for academic jobs. And I realized this is not going to happen because the universities weren't hiring. So I started just writing freelance um, stories, and uh, happened to run into this guy. Actually, I'll tell the story. Um, I had a blog at the time where I was kind of breaking down some politics and stuff that was happening in the Bay Area, and I, I wasn't really getting paid for my journalism um, very frequently at the time because I wasn't I wasn't smart enough yet to like do the freelance game. And I wrote the I think I wrote a I wrote something about um, 
a uh, particular doctor who's serving, you know, sitting on the board of a company that makes the uh, taser weapons and. Um, and I was writing about the taser contracts and for Bay Area police departments. And I found this really great photo of an Oakland police officer with a taser on him. Uh, yeah. And, um, it was, I think the photo was posted to like one of those Flickr, one of those like now defunct sites. Right. And so I pulled it onto my blog and I get this email like a couple days later from someone called Ollie Winston. He's like, Hey, you stole my photo. <laughs> it wasn't that brusque. <laughs> Was, I said I knew who you were, man. I said I, knew, I read your stuff. I was like, I love it. No, but it was I like, it was like that's cool, but you know, like you got to put my credit there. And I was yeah. like, and I, I, you know, I was kind of naive also to the, you know, to, yeah, you got to add credit to people. You can't just take a photo off the internet. Um, and that kind of started a conversation between us yeah. about uh, law enforcement. This guy kind of dragged me into reporting on law enforcement in some ways. And in terms of how you actually do your job, how you got the information that went into this book, I know one of the tools that you use um, are something called FOIAs, Freedom of Information uh, Act requests. And you know, a lot of people who aren't journalists might really not understand what FOIAs are or how they work, but I think it's important to explain so people understand that this information uh, was not given up freely. So what are some of the challenges? How do you use FOIAs and what are they? And uh, what resistance do you face when you're trying to uh, gather information for a project like this? Yeah, so the, um, a lot of the material in this book, especially the post-2000 stuff, came from a, a number of California Public Records Act requests that we made. And there's a lot of people in the room I, I know are very familiar with that law, um, more so than us even. And like, we also use it frequently. Um, the law says that, you know, any public agency is supposed to hand over records to you within a set period of time. And the key thing that happened for us was a state bill was passed, SB 1421, that um, opened up a, a broad range of police misconduct documents that had, like, previously never been seen before. So when that law went into a, the day it went into effect, we, uh, Ali and I had been sort of, like, planning, you know, like, we need to get some stuff here. So we filed, I think, about 40 Public Records Act requests with the city of Oakland for kind of like the greatest, the worst hits of yeah. the Oakland Police Department over the years. And a lot, some of it went back to, we asked for stuff from the 90s, the early 2000s, um, some later stuff. And the city of Oakland, this is not going to shock anybody in the room, um, <laughs> they really failed to comply with the law. And um, I had been keeping a really diligent record of these requests um, via email and, and, a, and a correspondence with the police department record staff because in the back of my head I was like we're gonna have to get an, you know we're gonna have to get an attorney here to prosecute this um, <laughs> to, to take these guys to court um, which in California is the only way that you can actually enforce the Public Records Act in other states there are different laws um, that have an appeal process but in California your first and last recourse if the you get denied by the agency is to sue yeah, and so there's there's a sort of winding way this happened, but the the short of it was um, another journalist in the Bay Area, who some of you might be familiar with, Scott Morris, was putting together a class action lawsuit against the city of Oakland to pry records from the police records from the city, and his attorney ended up contacting us, and um, we linked up with Sam Ferguson, just an amazing attorney, and we when we handed Sam the record of our correspondence with the city of Oakland, he was just. Yeah, you could sort of just see his eyes light up like, oh, this is gold and I'm going to like destroy these guys in court. (laughs) And um, And he did. And he did. He totally destroyed him in court and forced 
yeah, I mean, we must have got tens or a hundred thousand pages of new records. A lot of the cases were known about, but like in new levels of detail that like we had really never seen before. So the title of this book, The Riders Come Out at Night, is referring to a specific scandal that happened about 20, 23 years ago. Um, it's commonly known as the Riders case. And uh, I'm wondering if you guys can kind of give a quick overview of that case and explain why it's still relevant. Why was this the sort of centerpiece of this book, which really covers you know, more than a century of OPD history? Sure. So the Riders case is the trigger for Oakland being under court oversight. It came about as a result of this um, the scandal and is still in place today. So what happened is that in the late 1990s, uh, Jerry Brown made his political comeback um, by winning the mayoralty in Oakland. And when he was running for, initially, you know, he'd been governor of California in the 1970s, late 70s, and had kind of spent some years in the political wilderness. Um, he'd run for president a bunch of times, lost, rebuilt his career kind of as this, like, esoteric new age figure who lived in a loft in Jack London Square and um, what was the term he was he said he was gonna turn Oakland into like an ecotopia yeah yeah yeah. yeah. if anybody remembers that novel <laughs> from the 1970s uh, Tim might actually have it on the shelves here do you have ecotopia do you have ecotopia somewhere around the racks oh you got it well there'll be it's in high demand so you can check it out right here isn't that the great part about having events in a bookstore um, so he ran on this platform it was this really like progressive left-wing platform and no surprise, a lot of people in Oakland, there's like a big constituency that for those views in the city was and still is. And, you know, by the time he came into office after a year, after not a year, um, as somebody who is in his administration basically put it to us, this guy turned into Rudy Giuliani West. Um, he was pushing a very aggressive uh, market rate development plan in the downtown area. And concurrent with that, he also pushed a hardcore zero tolerance NYPD style clean up the streets program. He would go into uh, police lineups and basically urge them on and say, go on, take those corners back. You know, we're going to back your play. You know, I've got you do what you need to do. And the thing is that at the time, you know, Oakland to this day still has a significant problem with violent crime and with narcotics trade and so forth and at that point in time there was a lot more street traffic there were more open air markets as there had been in the city since the 1970s or 80s deindustrialization prop 13 white flight disinvestment um there are many many factors behind that um but during this period there was a group of officers who were in west oakland uh were in were patrol officers and they were very aggressive very active very well liked in the department and they got what their supervisors really wanted which was numbers they made arrests they hit their quotas they made their supervisors look good they made the supervisors then made the police chief look good which they made the mayor look good so everybody was benefiting from this except the people on the street in west oakland and this didn't come to light because uh, people in on the street complained about it because Oaklanders complained about it, which they did. Public defenders knew about this. We actually, when we were on another radio program, had an old PD call in and say we would make these motions all the time when uh, certain officers would be in court. Hey, their testimony is not viable and the judges and the DAs would just kind of wave it off or plea bargain the case down. But just to be specific, because they knew, I mean, there was essentially common knowledge that these oh, yeah. officers were planting drugs on people left and right. They were framing them up. Yeah. So what they would do is they would pick people off the street, sometimes just people who were walking down the street at night in their neighborhood, almost all African-American, um, predominantly male. And they would, what's known in New York, um, they would flake them. They would plant drugs on them. 
Um, they would write them up for offenses that they didn't commit. They would beat them. They would really punish them. And they're just for, for disrespect to cops sometimes, they would just absolutely brutalize them. And they came to light not because of any of the previous conditions that I, that I mentioned, but because a young officer named Keith Batt, who was assigned as a trainee to one of these officers, uh, Clarence Mabinag, Chuck Mabinag, was so horrified with what he saw in less than two weeks as a trainee that he blew the whistle on them and made it clear because his, this is well before cell phone video. This is at a point in time when there was less, you know, the current atmosphere around law enforcement where there's a lot more accountability for it because of different changes in technology and public opinion. This is at the point in American politics when, you know, cops had a lot more worth behind their word. So it's their word versus the word of somebody on the street. But now that there was now there was another officer who'd basically broken the blue wall of silence and blew the whistle on these guys. Can you talk about sort of what happened then eventually with the outcome of the court case? Because this blew up, became a huge scandal. These officers end up getting charged with various crimes. What's the what's the fallout from that? Yeah, it was investigated initially um, by the department as an internal affairs case. And I'll just tell you really quickly why they were called the writers, because it, it's not giving too much away from the book, but it's interesting. Um, the The story goes that um, there was an African-American man driving through West Oakland one day, and he was pulled over by an Oakland police officer. And the officer walked up to the car and, um, you know, give me your license and registration, walked back, ended up writing the man a ticket. And the man in the car, upon getting the ticket, looks out at the officer and says, thank you. And the officer is very surprised, and he's like, why are you thanking me? I just gave you a ticket. And the man in the car says, well, it's not like this at night. At night, the writers come out, and supposedly that officer took that story back to the department and then told it in the department, and it became sort of a locker room story that was shared, and then, pe and then some officers started calling themselves the writers. Um, so when the scandal broke, it was, in, it was investigated as an internal affairs complaint, um, four officers were fired. Those same four officers were then put on criminal trial, um, twice actually. The first criminal trial, one of the officers, Frank Vasquez, failed to show up because he disappeared. He was last seen somewhere in... Um, the, Susan City. Yeah, the North Bay with a uh, rifle in his back seat and a gun, and he was stopped by some local cops up there who were concerned about him, but he sort of badged his way out of it. I'm an Oakland cop. And no one has really ever seen him since. There's um, thoughts he Still might be Still a fugitive, Mexican. right, to this day? Yeah, his wanted posters yeah. in the book, if you flip through to the images. Yeah, we also, um, we FOIA'd, we did a federal Freedom of Information Act request for some of his FBI records, and we got some back. And it's not super interesting. It didn't look like there was actually a very robust um, fugitive investigation to chase him down, but whatever. Anyways, there were two criminal trials. <laughs> The key thing I want to say here is just that both criminal trials, neither of them ever ended in guilty verdicts for any of the officers. Most of the counts in both trials, um, the jury was hung. They could not reach a decision. And then for one of the officers, Matthew Hornung, he was actually acquitted of the smaller number of charges that he, were brought against him in the second trial. The reason I'm telling you this is this created within the Oakland Police Department a perception that the Ryder scandal was a fake scandal and that the officers had done nothing wrong, even though the department had already determined that they had clearly broken city rules around policing and police procedures. 
And so within the department, the narrative became that this is a fake scandal and that um, Jerry Brown and the other political leaders in the city of Oakland made us into scapegoats. Um, we did nothing wrong. We pursued the aggressive kind of policing they wanted us to pursue. And they left us out to dry when the political ramifications, you know, when, when the fallout really came for this. That, that was part of the um, uh, reason why the negotiated settlement agreement that came out of the writer's case, um, why it's been so difficult to implement it all these years later, precisely because there's huge resistance within the department to what is, quote unquote, a fake scandal. Were you going to add something, Ali? Yeah, I was. Um, it's important to keep in mind, too, that con so consent decrees when it comes to law enforcement, which is a legalistic mechanism which we use to reform problem institutions in this country, mental hospitals, educational um, systems, you know, various institutions, they are, when it comes to law enforcement, they're brought typically either by the Federal Department of Justice or state's attorneys general, because states have similar laws that enable that sort of action um, in a pattern and practice lawsuit. So there's a state investigation. There's typically a finding report that's issued. Then after that, the prosecuting agency will file a suit against the institution and ask a judge to approve a consent decree. In this case, the Federal Department of Justice and the California uh, Attorney General did nothing. They did not pursue a pattern and practice case against the Oakland Police Department, which is interesting because at the same time, there was a contemporaneous scandal to the rioters in Los Angeles called the Rampart Scandal, which also involved a group of officers engaged in gross misconduct. Um, it was dramatized by a film, you may have seen it, uh, Denzel Washington won an Oscar for it, it's called Training Day. But that scandal resulted in a federal lawsuit and a pattern and practice suit and a finding report and then a consent decree in Oakland. This was actually left to two private attorneys, uh, John Burris and Jim Channon, who are quite well known around here, who sued on behalf of 119 African-American men who were victims of the rioters. And as a result of this suit, rather than bankrupt the city of Oakland, they secured a consent decree, a reform program for OPD. Before we um, kind of move on to the next set of questions, something I just want to kind of uh, underscore is that, as you mentioned in the kind of beginning of that response, uh, this, this sort of political pressure for the OPD to kind of be more aggressive, be more violent, was coming um, from the Jerry Brown administration because he made this promise to make Oakland safer, clean up the streets. There's an interesting statistic in your book where you mentioned that um, despite all this kind of tough-on-crime-style policing, in his final year as mayor, Jerry Brown's year as mayor, there were 148 murders, the highest since the early 90s. So I think this is another sort of social dynamic that uh, you, you know kind of comes up again and again in the book, which is that harsher policing methods do not necessarily or ever even um, result in less crime. No, you're totally right. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Those like, things are independent of each right, other. Exactly. You can have more reform and yeah. crime will go down. You can right. also have more reform and crime will go up. You can have yeah. um, a super tough-talking police chief and mayor and crime will go down or up. It's There's no real rhyme or reason, but it is true. Reform can lead to better, more effective policing. If you don't, if, if you let problems linger in the department, then you're definitely going to have a community that doesn't trust the department, and it will certainly undermine investigations and stuff like that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in Oakland, the period of time in recent memory when crime actually did, when violent crime did decline significantly was during what, 2013 through 2019. Is that right, Darwin? Just yeah, now? I think that's roughly And right. that was a period of time when there was a program in place started by a really kind of pushed by then police chief Sean Went when 
you saw a very strict focus on people who had committed a small number of people who committed the outsized number of acts of firearm violence in the city. It went around by the name Ceasefire, and there's controversy about it for kind of a carrot and stick, uh, coercive and um, coercive approach towards encouraging people not to engage in violence ahead of time. That being said, during this period, there actually were, there was more rigor to investigations. There was kind of a, this unit was kind of set apart from the rest of the department and allowed to do its work. And then at certain points it became, you know, certain people get disillusioned with somebody else's political project and it falls by the wayside. Certain key personnel retire. It's one of the hard things about uh, keeping this, these sorts of efforts ongoing. But also it's worth noting that like the number of police and the actual crime rate, they don't correlate. People don't know what causes crime. This is the thing. You talk to criminologists, they don't know what causes crime. They don't have a silver bullet for it. If there was one, everybody would be, use, everybody would be using the same method. It does not exist. And that's a big, big, big underlying thing about American law enforcement. And in this we trace this out in our book, Through Oakland's History. When law enforcement is created and when you know, the Oakland Police Department is created and its first century of operation, crime is not what they're concerned with. They're concerned with two things protecting private property and the interests of the ruling class of Oakland, which is an Anglo, white Anglo elite men, and then also keeping restive populations in line, be they Chinese immigrants, labor rads, African-Americans who move here during the war, for the war industries or student radicals and the new left. And crime control is really an afterthought and comes into play in the mid 20th century. And you can see the similar dynamic in the rest of the country as well. But that's actually something that we really make an effort to trace out in this book. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, those examples that you gave are more historical examples, but that uh, issue of kind of not exclusively or even prioritizing crime can be seen even in more recent years. Like, for example, a story that you guys covered a lot about a decade ago had to do with the uh, sort of these new high-tech uh, surveillance systems that the Oakland police were starting to utilize and trying to kind of really uh, create a model here of an Oakland. And were they using, you know, these uh, new tools, these new high-tech tools to go after people running guns or murderers? No, they were spying on activists, right? Yeah, that was, um, you're referring to the Domain Awareness Center, right? Which was this uh, ambitious project that the city had gotten some federal money for and the fire department was like running it and, and the police department came in and they had this like pie in the sky notion that, oh, we're going to like tie all these crazy sensors together across the city. We're going to have cameras in schools and on the streets and in the ports. And we're going to have the gunshot detectors. And we're going to have like, you know, this big command and control room with all these big panels. And we can look at all the, you know, we have situational awareness across the entire city. And um, yeah, that was, you know, that was around the time that um, there were a lot of revelations about, you know, spying by the, um, federal government on like during the, the Snowden era. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, a lot of people in Oakland freaked out about that and like took it to the city council and had them scuttle it. I'll just say like, it's been interesting to watch over the past few years in Oakland as a lot of that surveillance, you know, tech has kind of actually crept back into the city and is being used now. There's like, uh, like I never thought I would see the day when o the Oakland police got drones and they got some drones and they had a pretty problematic sergeant running the drone unit apparently but um and the drones came from a very interesting person too but we don't have to talk about them tonight so kind of staying on this focus of the last like you know 20 years or so um you know reading through the scandals in your book of which there are many there's kind of like a, a real pattern that emerges and i'll try to kind of simplify it and summarize it here um 
like one or more officers will get caught doing something bad, either, you know, something that's in violation of policy protocols, you know, department policy protocols or something actually illegal. They will get reprimanded in some way, whether that's, you know, a suspension, getting fired, sometimes in extreme cases, criminal charges. And then the sort of uproar will die down a little bit. And then six months or a year or two years later, uh, the case will get brought to arbitration. And there's a phrase which appears numerous times, way, way too many times in this book, which is reinstated with back pay. And when a lot of these cases of really egregious misconduct go before arbitration, the officers are ultimately vindicated and get their jobs back, get their, you know, their status back, get the back pay. And part of this equation is an organization called the Oakland Police Officers Association. So kind of a two-part question here. I'm wondering if you can explain who the OPOA is, what they do, and uh, how exactly does this arbitration process work because in the book it seems like a little bit of a black box it's like it goes into arbitration and then voila out comes this decision that basically lets the cops get their jobs back so why does that keep happening sure well the oakland police officers association is the local cop union uh they represent i believe up to sergeant grade beyond I think a little that. higher do they represent lts yeah, now i think they do but um you know the opoa is a members or members organization it's founded it's funded by the dues paid by its officers so they're um one of the things that they do is they provide legal aid and lawyers for officers who are implicated in instances of misconduct and they represent these officers in their um both in the internal affairs processes when they're being investigated by their own internal affairs and also in criminal cases when they're being investigated or charged by local prosecutors and they're you know, MO is to protect their rank and file and to make certain that their members get the fairest legal process that they believe they deserve. OPOA is also a pretty reactionary organization. We have some, uh, there's chapters <clears throat> that deal with the deep history of the police department that outline how OPOA forced out a very reform-minded chief in the 1970s named Charles Gain, um, a pretty remarkable figure who was a native Oakland, not a native Oaklander, his family was dust, were dust, uh, dust Bowl migrants from Texas, grew up in Oakland, white guy, did not like the way that OPD was policing in the mid-50s and 60s, uh, did not like the like jackbooted racism that basically led to the rise of the Black Panthers in reaction to that. And he really pushed to professionalize the department and push it in a direction that treated people, you know, towards a more equal representation under the law. And... There are other examples of OPOA's pretty reactionary culture, but by and large, they and a law firm which they work with, uh, the Reigns, Lucia, and Stern law firm, has done quite a bit. And they're good lawyers, too, but they really have picked apart a lot of the internal affairs cases that have dealt with and tried to discipline some of the officers involved in really egregious misconduct. Um, one example is Officer Hector Jimenez, who within a year... Uh, within two years of his hiring had killed two unarmed suspects in extremely circumspect circumstances. That's the nicest thing I could say about it. Was fired and then as a result of his arbitration was hired with back pain. It's now I believe he's almost a lieutenant at this point. I think he is. He's a supervisor now. Yeah. So I'll let Darwin explain the arbitration process, but this is actually a key reason why the disciplinary reforms that have been attempted under the uh, negotiated settlement agreement under the consent decree why they have not stuck i won't bore you with the entire like ins and outs of the arbitration process um, but the key thing to know is that every 
public employee in California. Ca California is a, a very like union strong state, right? This is something that's probably pretty good for the health of the California economy and the average worker, right? And police officers are included in the in the unionized um, represented uh, ranks of public employees. And the police officers unions have some of the best protections for their members of any unions, probably anywhere in the world. Um, when you are accused of wrongdoing as a police officer, the, the rights that you're afforded, there's a whole police officer's bill of rights that's like in, you know, state law and it outlines the ways in which um, you are afforded protections and some of the protections that um, you get include the right to challenge the investigation and the discipline that a police chief, um, the Department of Internal Affairs and police chief is trying to impose upon you. And so one thing you get to do um, a bit later in the process is you get to take that to arbitration and a neutral arbitrator who's usually selected by um, the police union and the city together will hear the entire case and then rule on it. There's a lot of critiques of arbitration that have been made over the years. One is that arbitrators typically want to try to make both parties kind of happy. And so they quote unquote split the baby, which means, you know, if officer so-and-so shot and killed so-and-so who was unarmed and the department wants to fire them, well, the compromise would be, well, let's just have them be suspended and, you know, for maybe a few weeks or something like that. And so you end up with these very, uh, you end up with these decisions that are like really not good in terms of um, the high kind of high risk, high damage sort of um, things that police officers can be accused of. Uh, one of the most recent examples of this process is the, the Joshua Pollock shooting, which we get into a little bit, but we don't mention the ins and outs of the arbitration process all that much. But um, some of the officers who killed this, this young man a few years ago have managed to um, win back their jobs. It's unclear if they'll actually come back to OPD or if they'll just take their back pay and continue working at other agencies. I haven't followed up on that. There's probably some journalists in the room who are looking into it, though. Maybe this is like a naive question, but it just seems, you know, reading the book, it seems crazy to me that um, the OPOA, which has kind of tasked itself with protecting the police department, would fight to get people back on the force who have been caught doing things like, for example, falsifying dozens of reports, misconduct that gets criminal cases thrown out. It, it's like you would think that if they're trying to build a strong police department, they wouldn't want these people who are proven to be so shoddy and not only shoddy but unethical well the thing is that there's a very oppositional relationship between opoa and the city attorney's office which handles the city side of upholding the internal affairs cases not only that opoa is one of the big reasons why the nsa hasn't gotten implemented their resistance to those changes they i mean they're they've funded they paid for the riders defense yeah they fundraised for it we have departmental bulletins where you'd say, you know, I believe there's a bulletin from Richard Ward, the police chief at the time when the riders were initially being investigated and charged, said something like, oh, you know, we're disappointed on the front of the chief's bulletin. We're disappointed in the conduct of da -da -da -da, these officers, Matarang, Hornug, Vasquez and Siapno and so forth. And we hope that this is investigated and brought to light. And then in the backside, donations to the legal defense of these officers can be made to OPOA at the following box in X, Y room. So there's like there's a duality there. But just to add, however you feel about police unions, the role of a labor organization is not to make the boss, you know, is not to like make the institution better necessarily. It's to protect the members. It's to protect the workers and to, you know, to the extent they can collaborate and work with the administration to make the institution better. They could or they won't. Maybe, maybe some organizations will resist that. But 
um, that's really not the job of the labor organization, right? It's to protect its members from abuses of management. And so if I'm going to be devil's advocate here, if, I, if you know, the sort of setting that we're in, um, OPOA's job is to protect police officers from unfair discipline. And actually, there are a lot of instances in the history of the Oakland Police Department where low-ranking police officers are unfairly punished, while high-ranking police officers get away with a lot of crap. And it's made the rank and file there very angry over the years. And so to some extent, OPOA and some of the members have a, have a right to be very oppositional and aggressive uh, with the city administration. And oftentimes, the internal affairs investigations are politicized. And there are examples where certain people are hung out to dry and officers have their rights run over and their superiors skate on discipline. I mean, there's an adage about law enforcement, which is that, you know, awful runs downhill. I'm not going to use the other term for that since you're being broadcast on yeah. terrestrial radio. <laughs> but um, it really holds true. And we've seen this time and time again in OPD that higher ranking officers are not held to the same standard of discipline. Which, which then creates this opposition to an oppositional relationship between the union and their attorneys and then also the disciplinary process and the city attorney's office. And the city attorney's office actually has a big cross to bear in all this. And over the years, the federal judges overseeing OP, OPD's consent decree have dinged them quite heavily about that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess just one of the main takeaways uh, reading the book for me was just how little accountability there's been historically for police who have been caught doing bad things. I mean, there are examples in more recent years, um, like the George Floyd case or um, Johannes Meserly, who shot Oscar Grant, of officers actually being disciplined. Um, one could argue not disciplined harshly enough. But um, one example from the book that jumped out at me, for example, uh, is a particularly egregious uh, lack of accountability was an officer named John Gutierrez, who was suspended for stealing money and falsifying reports, but the same year that he got caught stealing money and falsifying reports, he was named Officer of the Year because he brought in some big drug busts. I mean, it's kind of sending a message, right? When you reward people who get caught breaking the rules like that. Um, you know, there's, I'm sure there's a lot of great questions in this room, and I want to make sure we save some time for Q&A, so I've just got a couple more here. Um, one of the uh, things that you notice, especially when this book you know, lays out the whole historical line of Oakland policing is that the role that public opinion plays in uh, you know, reform can be really substantial. Uh, and it's often a pendulum that kind of swings back and forth depending on crime rates and other factors. So you know, what I'm getting at is because public opinion can shift so much, it's important to enshrine some of these reforms into law, into policy. And I'm just wondering, um, you, know, you talk in the end of the book about how some progress has made. So I'm wondering like, from your research, what, is, what are some of the reforms that have been most effective or impactful in terms of you know reducing misconduct or keeping the public safer one one thing that has helped over decades is when outside authorities come in and do some oversight um, in Oakland in particular uh, 1949 there was a, a famous case uh, Jimmy Jimmy Newson I think was his name young African-American man, I think 18 years old accused of a double murder in West Oakland uh, killing two people in a pharmacy on 7th Street or something. And um, the police went out and found this kid and arrested him and accused him of the murder. And he was ultimately acquitted. Uh, his attorney was Robert Truhaft, who was this sort of fam famous, uh, you know, civil rights attorney in the area. And 
True Half then, uh, p- partly because of that case and some other abuses that were happening at the time, goes to the state legislature and finds this Los Angeles-based um, assembly member, Vernon Kilpatrick. And Kilpatrick then sets up a oversight committee to come to Oakland and do a big famous hearing in 1950, which, is, which creates this um, record of police abuses. That's kind of the beginning of the like record of like this external oversight happening. And it was just real quick. That oversight um, was uh, the the team that came in here to investigate this was run by other police officers, right? It was like a San Bernardino police chief. And I yeah. remember one thing really jumped out of me from the book was this cop from San Bernardino who came to Oakland to look into these accusations of just police misconduct. I think he said that the mayor of Oakland was the most racist person he'd ever met in his entire life. Yeah, I think you're referring to, is it Robert Powers? Yeah, I'm uh, looking him up is right it now. Bakersfield might... or. He's from Bakersfield, I believe. Yeah. I'll, Bakersfield, I'll actually, yeah. fi- if you give me five seconds, I'll find it and he, I can read he, a little bit. He was really interesting because he was a contemporary and, and close associate of Earl Warren. and But he's, yeah, he's brought in to investigate that, that case. And. Did you find it? Yeah, I got it. So here's a quote. This is from an oral history that we actually dug up at the Bancroft Library at UC Berkeley of uh, that Bakersfield police chief, ex-Bakersfield PD chief, uh, Robert B. Powers, said, this is a remark about Oakland. I couldn't have gotten near a police record, he said. I found the mayor, Clifford Rochelle, particularly to be the most bigoted racist that I'd ever seen. The city manager, John Hassler, wasn't going to drop out from behind his police chief. The police chief, Lester Devine, was beginning to hate my guts. I mean, this guy basically called OPD sadistic. And and I just want to highlight that history. because that era that you're talking about, like the World War II era, the 40s going into the 50s, this is the time when people like Huey Newton and Bobby Seale were growing up in right. Oakland. So like these are the conditions that these you know guys saw as children. And of course, you know, when they're in their 20s, they go on to form the Black Panther Party. There's a very specific... Uh, you know, specific cause and effect, I think, there when you look at it in this historical context. Yeah, and the people running the city at the time, Lester Devine, the police chief, Edward Toothman, um, the mayors like John Reading and others, they have no interest in addressing the abuses that people are telling them are happening with the police department. So again, like, you know, the ex-police chief of Bakersfield comes in, investigates, they have a assembly committee hearing, I think, in the Renee Davidson courthouse. Mm-hmm. Nothing comes of it except for some newspaper coverage, um, the best coverage of which I think was in the California Eagle, the African-American newspaper. So then decades are passing and you, you repeatedly see this. You repeatedly see these attempts to bring in outside authorities to like shake things up. It's really not until the, um, the late 70s with the arrival of actual like black political power in Oakland when there's a, a, a black mayor and black people are getting on the city council and there's some, some more um, just genuine like power to be able to do something about it that you see um the first police oversight board set up in oakland in 1980 but it's largely toothless it struggles into the 1990s and then activists are trying to strengthen it year after year this long kind of iterative process of setting up these institutions in oakland and it's always kind of like it's always extremely difficult it's even even today some of these institutions are having a lot of problems like the police commission and others yeah but they almost never happen without serious pressure from the outside whether it's from armed radicals like the black panthers or whether it's from really tumultuous oftentimes violent protests like the oscar grant movement the occupy oakland movement um, the first round of the black lives matters i mean there's a ton of pressure on the institutions in oakland from outside from the street from the citizenry and that's a big reason why things when you start to see the inflection points, which we map out in this book, it happens because there's a critical mass of pressure both from inside and definitely from the outside. 
All right, that was the end of my interview with Ali and Darwin, but we had a lot of questions from the audience at this event. So stay tuned because those are coming up next. Thank you all so much for participating in this event. Thank you for writing the book. Really appreciate it. So over at least the last few years, when it comes to uh, creating the city budget here in Oakland, there's been a consistent uh, political effort to defund OPD and refund Oakland uh, and other services uh, throughout the city. And one thing that I've noticed from watching that and reading the coverage of it is the amount of overtime pay that OPD uh, gets every time, and that needs to be factored in. What is going on with this exorbitant amount in overtime that OPD gets and that the city council seems to just authorize over and over? Uh, There's a few ways to answer it. Um, One way is that the city administration has planned for a particular level of police service and so they've mapped the city out. It's broken into different areas and beats, and officers are assigned to patrol those areas. The police department doesn't have enough officers to adequately carry out that plan that has been authorized by the city council, uh, drafted by the city administration and the police department, and sort of tacitly like authorized by the voters of Oakland who you know, selected their leadership. Um, and so because they don't have enough officers to carry that out, they rely on massive amounts of overtime to have the officers they do have fill in extra shifts so that they can patrol. Um, There used to be a lot of gaming of the system also where officers would quite simply take a lot of overtime just to get paid really well. But from what I understand right now, a lot of it is simply that there's a lot of these code three calls, like, you know, people getting shot a lot. There's a lot of bad things happening in Oakland. And the residents genuinely do want police officers to show up when bad things happen. And there's simply not enough police officers and the city budget is too small. And to hire a police officer in California, you're looking at, you know, well over a hundred thousand, near two hundred thousand dollars to like bring one on board and, and carry that annually. And so it's it's a fiscal issue, it's an organizational issue, and it's kind of complicated, but that's essentially it. You can get to the point where certain officers pull in half a million dollars a year in full compensation plus OT. The sergeant at the center of the current scandal, Michael Chung, earns about $500,000 a year in his last paycheck, 200000 of which were OT. And it's not clear. Again, there's also another thing, too. Overtime is typically one of the points where you do see a lot of gaming the system. And when you have certain individuals hitting that high an amount without either a legal settlement that gives them back pay or something like that, or a particularly chaotic year where there's tons of like tons of protests or long hours or so on, it's cause for concern. And scouring overtime is one of the most important roles of a police executive, and oftentimes it falls by the wayside. Okay, well, I haven't read the book, so I don't know if you cover this. Um, I was on the first community policing task force that we had in the early 90s. Wilson Riles, Dan Siegel, there were a lot of us. And the idea was to really turn the d- department into a community policing department. Not a, a, a segment of the police, but the entire police department would be oriented around community policing. And it would also involve things like the schools becoming community centers where services where it would happen for whole communities, which we could really use now with the schools being closed, open them for that. But um, they, it was passed as an ordinance 
I think it was 94, 95, and, um, and then melted away. Can you tell us more about how that happened? We don't get into it in a lot of detail, but my understanding is part of the reason it melted away is because there was contempt within the police department's rank and file, particularly the sergeants mm -hmm. and the lieutenants who had been there a lot longer. They thought community policing is some soft crap that they just they just did not want right. to deal with. Their, um, Oakland is a lot like the Los Angeles Police Department in the sense that um, the culture, the ethos of the police here is that they want to be highly professional. They want to have cars that they drive around in they want to um, be on patrol and take calls for service and they want to address violent crime they don't want to be social workers and that's how they saw it and so there was massive resistance within the police department and the city leadership at the time from like elihu harris um to you know uh joseph samuels running the police department um and all the way you know just years later um there was just huge resistance to it and so they um killed it from the inside basically yeah, the death of the walking patrol is probably, which were implemented in a lot of the city's commercial corridors in the mid-1990s, that's probably the most uh, glaring indication of that mm -hmm. inability to an unwillingness to fulfill that program. Uh, it looks like we got a question in back, and then we'll swing it back around this way. I'll try to keep it short. Um, has Oakland funded their crime lab yet, or do they still have a backlog on murder and rape evidence. Pretty sure they're they're getting some assistance to fund their crime lab from state grants. I think the FBI has also been involved in building out the crime lab a little bit more in recent years. And um, to, to my knowledge, although there are other people in the room who could maybe say more, um, I don't know that there's huge backlogs of evidence in the crime lab at this point in time, at least not any worse than you would find in other cities. Yeah, that backlog built up a tremendous amount because there had been ATF cooperation that had been cut for a lot of ballistics work. Um, ATF, Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, has been systematically defunded by Congress over the years because um, Republicans don't like firearms control or investigations of firearms um, or illegal trafficking of firearms. So the ballistics lab in particular um, was basically, they, all the assistance they got from the feds was cut back on. and. During the Great Recession, there was a similar drawback in OPD staffing numbers, and the rate of crime, the rate of actual shootings, didn't decrease. So they kept, they basically had a buildup of cases over time. But they got assistance from the FBI and a couple other federal components, and they did clear most of that backlog at the time. It's good to hear. Hey, everybody, Liam here. Just jumping in because we had some problems with the microphone, and uh, this next question didn't get recorded. But the person was basically asking about if the if the city of Oakland has shown any interest in taking a more oppositional approach to the Oakland Police Officers Association. That's the police union we were talking about earlier. And uh, just real quick before we jump back in, if anyone listening to this uh, podcast has experience doing audio recording at live events and uh, wants to help out at my next one, I could really use it. Uh, drop me a line at eastbayyesterday at gmail. Thanks. Yeah, I don't know that the city of Oakland and its political leadership and the administration have ever viewed their job as like attacking the police union. Probably quite the opposite. But yeah, there's there's a vigorous activist culture here that definitely has made that critique of the of police unions. One thing I do want to point out, just because it's fresh on my mind, having read this really strange report that came out last week about this case that may be costing the current police chief his job, is that 
the investigators, the outside investigators with this law firm, Clarence Dyer and Cohen, who conducted this investigation into this sergeant who did some crazy stuff, and then the captain of internal affairs. Just to, just to clarify, uh, the crazy stuff was a hit and run and also uh, accidentally discharging his firearm inside the police uh, department's elevator, correct? Uh, no, no. And then, Oh, yeah, and then throwing the no, evidence no, no, no. off the Bay Bridge. Yeah, not quite correct. It wasn't clear that the shooting was accidental. Um, so who knows what that's about. But So the captain of internal affairs appears to have um, reduced discipline for this sergeant because he's popular, and then the police chief didn't read the reports and just signed off on them, and um, so now this is a big deal, right, because the police department has shown it can't really hold itself accountable. In the report, this was, I this jumped out at me. I found it really interesting. The, the attorneys wrote, um, I think, in two different places that it was just really fascinating to them that all of the officers they interviewed, and they interviewed, I think, like over a dozen when they were investigating this case, were represented by the same law firm and the same attorney. And so there is something interesting going on with police unions and the resources they have and the law firms that they work closely with to defend their members. Those law firms are extremely good. I think in this case, they're referring again to the Reigns Lucia law firm. I don't know which particular attorney it was, but I, it was just fascinating that these outside attorneys who may not be super familiar with like the workings of the police discipline process, they thought it was odd enough to point that out, that like the police union is really powerful. And with these, the help of these attorneys, they managed to, you know, they, they managed to come in sort of a unified front and coordinate this defense for the membership um, to kind of like thwart discipline. Um, okay. I just wanted to ask what, I know that one of the groups that I try to follow is Anti-Police Terror Project in Oakland, and they've done a lot of push for developing a different um, response team called Macro. And I'm just curious how that, like how that relationship is, if there's any like contentious uh, relationship between OPD and Macro and how that's coming about and what's your opinions on Macro? I, yeah, I don't know that there's a contentious relationship between the police department and macro. Um, what I've heard from the police department is they would like macro to actually take more of their calls. Um, a lot of the police these days, they don't like showing up to people having a crisis. Um, they would rather go after a call where there's clearly someone who has committed a violent crime that they can deal with because they're better equipped for that. And they just feel like they're kind of being set up to fail when they're told to go out to a call for someone who's having a mental health crisis. And definitely the macro, this new macro team, which is right, like these are unarmed civilians who are trained in crisis de-escalation and they have some health care and other resources, far better equipped for that, uh, that kind of stuff. I mean, I think part of what you're asking does point toward there, there is a type of conflict, which is essentially the budget. And um, yeah, you know, when the police department in Oakland, I don't even know what the budget is now, 300 million nearing, how much is it? Does anybody know? Hundreds of millions a year. Um, when it's consuming roughly 40% of the general fund budget, how can you really scale up something like macro to make it make a big difference without reducing the police budget? And that as much as people some people want to pretend that there's not a conflict there. There certainly is. There is a zero-sum game in municipal budgets in California right now. Yeah, also, I've been on ride-alongs where 
there are in years past with OPD where they're having county intervention workers out um, for people who are in mental health crises. And I've seen how effective that approach can be when it's not just the cops talking to somebody. But it is a huge flaw of American society that we've put We've basically forced law enforcement to, and police officers to basically be Swiss Army knives and try and deal with so many different situations that is it's almost it is unhuman to expect that of one individual or one profession to be able to be a social worker, mental health professional, somebody who can basically use coercive force to get somebody to comply and also be able to talk someone down through that. It's an incredibly heavy burden on any one individual or profession. Considering that we've had the longest running consent decree in America, has that been effective in certain ways? Has it, like, in the long scope of it, has that been useful? And what also do you, I know that the recent police chief of Oakland who's being suspended right now, he denounced that his intention was to try to finally end that. That was his big goal. And to the effect of he, him blowing over certain cases and, like, just trying to rubber stamp it so that there wouldn't be another issue, which has created another issue, which will continue what what is your forecast for projections on on the consent decree and its value it's just a really weird goal that um a lot of leaders in oakland they just want to end the consent decree oh we just got to get out of this thing well you know it's the only thing that's held the police accountable at times um at, at crucial moments the like 2016 sex exploitation scandal the only reason we know about that actually is because uh former city council member desley brooks got suspicious about a, a weird alleged suicide that occurred and started talking to people and and pushing this and it ended up in the ear of uh, Robert Warshaw the court monitor eventually and you know he ordered an intervention there and the only reason we know about a lot of these scandals is like this yeah outside pressure the consent decree um, yeah the goal of just wrapping it up it's a it's a very curious one maybe we need it maybe Oakland needs it to continue to ensure that the police department is in a state where there's there's transparency and accountability. Uh, it certainly has yet, the city has yet to prove that it can set up institutions that can do this work on, on their own. So thank you for all your research. Obviously you've done so much. I'm, I'm really curious about what your thoughts are on where we go from here. Obviously our moderator, moderator shared, we still have a crime problem, yet we have all this dysfunction. So just your thoughts on how we move forward, how we, I mean, Oakland is still one of the most desirable places to live in the United States. There's money here from business residents. So yeah, w what's the what's a successful next step? And obviously, there's no silver bullet. So just your thoughts on that. Well, this is not a proscriptive book. We are not philosophers. We are not that we're, we're journalists, we're researchers, we're investigative reporters. We've what we've done is shown you tried to show you this history city and the history of this institution and how we've gotten to this point and what has been possible and has not been possible and the reasons why things have broken down the way that they, they have. But it really, you know, we hope that this information proves useful for people going forward. I can't tell you what's going to make Oakland a better city. I can tell you that the potholes need to be filled. Um, I can tell you, you all need to stop driving so much um, and figure that out with public transportation, you know, but there's nothing that's going to resolve 60, 70 years of deindustrialization and disinvestment and generational poverty in the flats. There's nothing that's going to resolve the fact that the Port of Oakland is essentially unpoliced and you can smuggle whatever you want through there. Nothing's going to resolve the fact you can drive to Nevada and purchase as many firearms as you want and come back within eight hours. Nothing's going to resolve the fact that ghost gun 
blueprints are available on the internet. You can you have kids running around with extended mags and drum mags on their pistols. Um, these are much broader problems than we can hope to address. But there's you know what we've tried to do is show how this particular institution, the city's gotten to this point. But I don't know the way forward. Yeah, I mean basically that's like way above our pay grade. <laughs> <laughs> your I mean your question's so crucial, but like we're like Ali said, we're ju we just took a look at the city and described what we saw over a few decades of attempted police reform. I first want to start off to say uh, thank you for writing this book, and but more than that, thank you for the years of journalism that you've done too. It's your um, fault exposing that stuff. I mean, we all we owe you a debt of gratitude. The city of Oakland owes you a debt of gratitude. Uh, people who care about this stuff really owe you. Um, one seems it seems to be the, the kind of the recurring theme here is that um, like Keith Bat story, right? Kid comes in, sees something awful, immediately freaks out and blows the whistle. But that doesn't always happen, right? Instead, the officers get sucked through the academy into the training, and then they become part of the problem. It seems like over time, is did you, did you notice anything in your reporting that says, okay, is there a way to break through that where there isn't this? Um, belief that protecting each other is more important than constitutional policing. That is institutional culture. That is the that is the hardest thing about law enforcement reform and about changing law enforcement culture. The old line culture, no matter who's in charge at the top, police chiefs last maybe what, five years tops? Like that's the longest tenure that you'll see. They come in, they come out. As you move up in the ranks, they change. Um, the real culture of the department is determined by the training officers and the sergeants, the line supervisors, and then some of the more experienced officers, the veterans who stay on and become police officers, don't want to rise like being on the ground level. And they really set the tone. And the thing is that just not, not in OPD alone, but in departments around the country, there is this culture that you don't snitch on your own. And then if that happens, the retaliation is severe. I mean, what... What happened to officers like Frank Serpico, the NYPD detective who blew the whistle on systematized graft in the NYPD in the 1970s, went all the way up to the police commissioner. Um, he was reassigned to narcotics and then during a raid on an apartment building in South Williamsburg, which now is pretty gentrified, but in the 1970s it was very rough and pretty bleak. Um, he was shot by a drug dealer and then left for dead and his colleagues wouldn't call for backup. And that's really the biggest fear about people who blow the whistle, that you, if you're out in these situations, you won't get covered. There's another example from NYPD in the 2011. A cop named Adrian Schoolcraft reported, he recorded his commanders demanding arrest quotas, illegal quotas for produ productivity. Stop a certain number of people, write them up, give me these forms, I don't care what they are, stop every black man on this corner, it doesn't matter, right? He was 730, which is the it's just a, a non-voluntary psychiatric hold. That's the New York code for it. He was 5150 in New York by the NYPD, and they put him in a mental hospital to keep him to, from talking to reporters and other people around the city. So this is the sort of thing that happens to whistleblowers. And, and until it's what you, happened to Keith Batt, who you precisely. mentioned, who blew yeah. the whistle on the riders. He was threatened with physical violence, and he was even, you know, run out of bars by other cops who recognized him and said, yeah. you know, you better get out of here. There's going to be trouble. And I mean, he was a pariah essentially for doing the right thing. Yeah. Within OPD, but you did the right thing and you're still working as a law enforcement officer to this day. But that also takes a certain personality type and not everybody has that. Not everyone's built like that. Not everyone's built to go under a tremendous amount of pressure. I mean, look, there's two officers in this photograph, Keith Batt and Scott Hewison. 
Scott also testified against the rioters. But Scott didn't do it voluntarily. Steve, excuse me, Steve Hewison. Steve didn't do it voluntarily. There was another Scott down the road. Um, he did it because he was subpoenaed and because he basically was confronted with evidence that he'd also falsified reports and then the DA leaned on him and so he turned. Hewison stayed in OPD for a long time, even though he was also put under a little bit of pressure, but he wasn't seen as the guy who'd outed all these other officers. He wasn't seen as the central villain. Is there a way to change that kind of thing? I mean, is it, it seems almost like impossible. OPD's been in 20 years of oversight and we still have the same problem where if a cop is popular and he does something bad, we're gonna not do anything about it. It comes down to consistency of discipline and courage from not just line officers, but also other people around the department to point out those cops. Part of the problem with the rioters, with Vasquez, Mabinag, Hornig, and, um, and Siapno is that they were well known. It was known that they were bad officers. It was known that they were violent, that they were aggressive, that they flaunted the law. Uh, Bat was warned by other cops, but when they found out about his training officer, you know, just keep your eyes open. And, you know. Oh, just real quick, I want to mention that there was actually a review of this book that was posted by a former Oakland police officer. Ali shared a screenshot on Twitter the other day, but I actually wrote down this quote. This is a former officer who uh, reviewed your book. Quote, I knew the writers and they were good men. <laughs> they were doing the best they could to make Oakland safe. And I mean, it's funny because like it's so far from the truth, but I don't think that's an uncommon attitude to this day of people who would still defend these horrific actions that you detail in the book. You want to say who that cop was, Darwin? I mean, yeah, this is another insane story. Who The person who actually wrote that's got uh, his own little section in this book here. No, who was that? Who was that? Oh, the cop was Andrew Caponin. He was one of two cops, two young white officers who shot and killed an undercover uh, Latino officer in East Oakland in the early 2000s, Willie Wilkins. It was a traumatic episode, to say the least, for OPD. And Caponin left the department not long after. He's quite despised within OPD's rank and file for that. And the, actually, the, and the reason we included that tragic police-on-police police shooting was because we... We wanted to show in this book, certainly the primary victims of police brutality and incompetence are members of the community, especially the black community in Oakland. But the incompetence, the violence, the dysfunction is so deep in the department that even some of the officers at times pay the ultimate price, are killed by their own colleagues because their colleagues show up and think, oh, there's a Puerto Rican guy with a gun pointing at another guy, let's just shoot him. And the department didn't mention, hey, there's actually an undercover operation out here tonight, and the undercover officer is this guy, and he's wearing this sweater with the Raiders emblem on it. You might not want to shoot him when you show up. We have another chapter about the Lavelle Mixon incident, which people will be familiar with. That was a really tragic incident. People did not, people did not, more, you know, three people that day did not need to die but they did because the department's deep dysfunctions. Did you Hi. still have a question over there? Okay. Uh, I have a quick question. Okay. Huh? Yeah. Um, first, I'd like to say thank you for writing the book. It's very exciting. My question is, is kind of esoteric. As you two have had a lot of experience here in this town, what was it like to unpack this? I, for myself, I would imagine it just, it would have been very emotional. Can you, can you just talk about what the experience was, like going through like discovery yeah um part of it is that for the years we were writing a bunch of these stories about these one-off police capers or these horrible crimes that happened and 
and also we had the privilege of being able to like report on the city's you know politics and other stuff how you know housing development gentrification things like that and when you're doing like that kind of daily to weekly journalism it's extremely fun and rewarding but it's also like hugely frustrating because you always have these ideas bouncing around in the back of your head and you're always seeing these big patterns and trends and you're always like linking this stuff back to hit like you you learn a little bit about the history the roots of this problem the origins of this or that or you know a little bit about a person's backstory and you want to tie these things together but you can't and your editor rightfully you know cuts your story from like eight thousand words down to like 1200 you know and <laughs> thankfully um and so uh when you when you actually have the like wonderful opportunity to write a book which is just like such a blessing you can like really sit sit and like take your time and like pour over things and connect all the dots that you saw on like that that i saw on a, and ali saw like on a daily basis of like churning out this journalism and it's just it's just so that that's like hugely rewarding even though the subject matter is like pretty depressing like going in newspaper archives and finding out that, you know, the city leadership in Oakland viewed the Chinese population in the 1800s as a thing to be gotten rid of. And the mayor was on record saying, like, we've got to prevent the expansion of Chinatown at all costs. It's just disgusting and sad to see that kind of history. And at the same time, it's exciting to be able to, like, put it on the record and connect it to things that matter now. So... It's rewarding. It's a little bit dark and depressing, and but it also helps to have a you know excellent partner in crime to like you know work on this project with. Yeah, yeah I mean it's it's easier when you're not doing this stuff alone. Um, I will say that in the earlier phases of the reporting on this stuff, before Darwin and I met, I did work a lot on things like officer-involved shootings, repeat shootings by specific officers, and other similar you know scandals. Uh, um, you know, it's interesting going back over a lot of our reports and pulling stuff out of the filing cabinet and going through old drives and files and videos. And, you know, you see bits of your younger self. You see um, things that you didn't pick up at the time. You actually end up talking to people who you couldn't get to at the time. Um, you kind of peel back the layers of history. It is like visit. you are visiting with your prior self, and it's a bit of a reflection therein. But I... You know, in a sense, because both of us lived it, we you know this was our community for so long, um, it didn't feel that odd. It actually felt really rewarding to be able to sit down and actually write this stuff out. Um, we would have liked to have maybe 50 more pages of this, but our editor at Atria um, kept us on a leash. So, Rightfully, again, yeah. cutting. <laughs> no, 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 no. He, he did a good job, for sure. Oh, um, Dorothy, you had a question? I do. Uh, I wanted to ask, uh, well, I'll say this. When I was growing up here in Oakland, uh, during the 70s, there was a, a belief in the community, in the African-American community, that most of Oakland's police were recruited from the South. And they felt like, you know, our elders felt like this is part of the problem, is that, you know, at, not only are you re recruiting from places known to be racist and outwardly so, but also the people who were police here in Oakland didn't live in Oakland, so they didn't have that buy-in to the community, that connection to the community. So in your, uh, my question is, in your research, did you find 
that they're still doing that or did you find that not or but and did you find that a lot of the police still don't live in Oakland still aren't part of this community the Oakland Police Department hiring process today they tout the fact that they actively recruit amongst um a lot of different uh, organizations. Um, they're actively seeking LGBTQ recruits. They're actively going to historically black colleges and universities to try to recruit. They've been able to diversify the department a little bit, but you're right, like the single biggest demographic in the department remains white men. Latino men are a growing demographic within the department. And I think last I looked, it was about 90% of the department lives outside of the city of Oakland. The The areas where they mostly live is like Contra Costa County and sort of the I-80 corridor, these like cop town areas. Um, it's, yeah, it's pretty difficult to recruit locals to work in the police department and not, not a lot of people end up living in Oakland. That topic, uh, residency of Oakland officers, was actually one of the first collaborations Darwin and I did together for the East Bay Express. We got the zip codes where they received their paychecks and mapped out where they lived. Um, and that percentage has held true for quite some time. With regard to the deeper question, the first part of the question about historical recruitment, there was an attempt to recruit from the South during the post-war period. But there was also, concurrently, this is important, um, there's another factor here, which is that Oakland, even aside from folks coming from the Deep South and Jim Crow areas, Oakland's own history shows a very deep history of, um, you know, incredibly bigoted worldviews. I mean, the KKK essentially ran the city in the 1920s, and they were well represented in the police department. The American Legion, which is the which was a 19-teens, 20s, hyper-nationalist, ultra-nationalist organization that is comparable now to the Proud Boys or the Oath Keepers, was very well represented by OPD and used as auxiliaries to attack uh, labor radicals and help round people up for the Palmer raids. Um, similarly, the John Birch Society was also very well represented in OPD's uh, ranks. There was a former African-American officer, one of the first, actually, who was a Tuskegee Airman, a pilot, a combat pilot in the in Italy during World War II named Gwyn Pearson, who wrote a brilliant dissertation about police culture on his years in the OPD. Um, he witnessed things like the murder of uh, little Bobby Hutton in the 1960s and other really egregious incidents. And his dissertation uh, really spells out this hardcore reactionary culture in, within OPD with far more detail than anything I've ever seen. It was a remarkable document. It's a tragedy he passed very early in, in 1991. I would have loved to interviewed him, but the dissertation was a great resource for that period. So yes, there also is this reactionary, like basically ultra-right element within police culture that it has a very significant through line all the way through history. So it's not just folks they pulled from the outside or military veterans. The military inflection in OPD is also a big part of that culture. And that came and went over time. Okay, once again, sorry, the uh, mic cut out for this question, but the gist of it was, is reform possible? Okay, here we go. Back to Darwin. Yeah, we're, we're not trying to be like Captain Bummers with the book. Um, it's, not like, it's not like reform isn't possible. Like, actually, we list a bunch of successful reforms toward the final chapters. It matters a lot that the Oakland Police Department used to kill over a dozen people every year, and like several of them in very questionable ways who were unarmed. They don't do that 
as much anymore. There are not a lot of shootings by police officers in the community anymore. And that's a direct uh, result of the reform programs and the huge amounts of pressure that protesters um, in the community have put on the department to seek accountability over the years. So that's just one example of reform being possible. There's a ton of others that we could list. It's just sort of the book is just kind of a way of saying, yeah, but also it remains like the promise of creating a police department that truly respects the U.S. Constitution and doesn't violate people's rights and doesn't enforce systematic racism in the society. That promise remains still unfulfilled to an extent that, you know, we should all be like outraged and like um, pushing toward actually achieving that goal there's a few part there's a few chapters in here where we try to get a little bit nuanced and and say like you know how can you reform policing when the police are one institution in a complicated society where discrimination still occurs and schools remain unequal and inequality is worsening um so we do we do try to like subtly point that out in a in a few chapters yeah in a way Unfortunately, law enforcement is one of the elements, is one of the main points of contact between Americans and the state, right? That's what, it's not the school, it's not the library, it's not your public hospital, because God knows there aren't many of those. Um, it's law enforcement, and part of the issue is that you're asking police to do so much with a society that has been fundamentally altered over 50, 30, 40 years of a neoliberal project that began in California with Reagan and the disinvestment and the disassembling of the of the legacy of the, both the Great Society and the New Deal. Um, it's an ongoing project, but that shift, that social shift, really put the, the like sharp end of the stick in everyone's face. And it is a bigger issue about looking beyond law enforcement, like treating certain things as public health issues. Narcotics, that's a great example of that, right? A lot of places around the country are not trying to treat drug possession as a criminal offense, but they're trying to treat it as an ailment that you deal with through public health measures. It's a very difficult process. It's People talk about, oh, well, Portugal did it. Well, Portugal is the size of what? Like Massachusetts? You know, this is a huge, this is a massive country. You have so many, it's a federalized country too. Each state has their own laws. They've got their own politics too. And some people are a little bit, you know, more in touch with reality than others in certain states. So, you know, this we're, you're fortunate in California to be in a state which actually has recognized the flaws of what, you know, the sociologist Ruth Wilson Gilmore called the golden gulag. Like, we, the th this is the state of three strikes. This is the state of 227% prison capacity. But it's changed a lot. Like, they, they're, things are very different than they were 15 years ago. Um, and I think that that's not something that we really, Americans have a very short memory. We're very ahistorical people, and we don't appreciate the long view of things oftentimes. I mean, education is a big part of that. But Well, hopefully this book will do a lot to change that. I think anyone who reads it will get quite an education and uh, the kind of critical analysis needed to um, confront really complex issues like how do we change the Oakland Police Department for the better. Um, I want to thank everyone for coming out tonight. Also, real quick, if you know anyone who might appreciate hearing this conversation who didn't make it out tonight, uh, it will be on the East Bay Yesterday podcast coming very soon, hopefully next week as well. That's going to do it for this episode of East Bay Yesterday. Thanks again for listening. I've been your host, Liam O'Donohue. 
Extra special thanks goes out to Tim and Adam and the whole team at Clio's Books for hosting this event. As I mentioned earlier, I'm hoping to do more events at Clio's in the near future, so uh, you can sign up for my newsletter at eastbayyesterday.com to stay updated about that. Also, big thanks to those of you who are supporting this show on Patreon. Your donations are greatly, greatly appreciated. I really wouldn't be able to keep doing this show without you. And if anyone else wants to be a supporter, please, please, please hit the donate link at eastbayyesterday.com. If you like this show, uh, can you help me spread the word? Tell your friends, post about it on social media. This, this podcast, it's an independent operation and every little bit helps. Music this week came from Justin Lee. That's going to do it. Uh, go out and buy Ali and Darwin's book. It's, a, it's an incredible read. And uh, if this is your first time listening to East Bay Yesterday, don't forget to subscribe. All right. See you soon.